Welcome back to the Art and Science of Sound Healing. I'm your host, Thomas Orr Anderson, recording from my cozy cabin studio in Sewanee, Tennessee, surrounded by beautiful, rich, thick forests and waterfalls all around. Today, we have a very exciting guest. I'm particularly excited that he's a guest because he is an expert in uh, a field that is most dear to me, being the physics of sound and vibration. Our guest today is Dr. Daniel A. Russell, and he is a professor of acoustics at Penn State. He has a really vast background in acoustics and the physics of vibration. He makes some really excellent uh, animations that I I utilize quite a bit in teaching and also in order to help myself understand the physics of sound better. He also specializes in the acoustics of musical instruments. He has uh, a really extraordinary resume I've been reading. He has a PhD in acoustics, a master's in applied physics, a BS in physics, and much to, much to my delight, a bachelor's in piano performance. And he's, uh, it's very exciting to have Dr. Russell here with us today. Welcome, Dr. Russell. Thank you very much, Tom. It's great to be on your show today. Yeah, I'm very excited. I, I'm certain that you'll have uh, a number of insights for us that will be helpful to our listeners to better understand these topics. Um, first of all, I, I already gave a little bit of bio, but could you tell us a little bit about your your work, particularly just just kind of a you know, a short sketch of your interests and work, anything that I might have left out? Well, my, my, my primary job as a professor at Penn State in the graduate program in acoustics, we teach grad students. We have students that are doing master's and PhD work. Um, part of my job is teaching in the classroom, but I also manage and oversee our distance education program. So we offer a master's degree in acoustics completely online, and I manage that, advise our students, work with them towards the completion of that degree. I believe we're the only, we're the only graduate program in acoustics in the entire country in the U.S., and we are the only one of about three schools in the, in the world, definitely the only one in the U.S. where uh, most people can get a, a master's degree in acoustics online. So I teach graduate-level courses in sound and vibration. There's about five courses that I teach. In our, in our graduate program. Uh, currently, I, I do a little bit of research on musical instruments, not as much. My main focus of research right now is the acoustics and vibration of sports equipment, things like baseball bats, tennis rackets, golf clubs, um, hockey sticks, uh, anything that you hold in your hands uh, and use to hit a ball of some kind. I do research trying to understand the vibration in terms of the feel that a player would report back, whether they like or don't like it, and then also in terms of the performance. That's a, a, a big topic with me. I'm a drummer, so I'm always hitting things with sticks. And sometimes yep. it's uh, more or less comfortable to my body and more or less effective. 
and uh, there's a lot a lot to explore there. It's amazing how how much uh, the place you hold a stick and and the geometry of it affects how it feels to the player. And I also I live in a mountain cabin and split a lot of wood. I spend about <clears throat> on the order of two hours a day uh, splitting, stacking wood and tending the fire. And I have a very, very nice splitting axe that I got. And the difference between it and a poorly designed axe is pretty tremendous in terms of how much it hurts my body. And it's oh, sure. kind of interesting. You probably know quite a bit about that. Have you studied axes or splitting no, axes? No, I walls? have not done anything with axes, but I'm sure that it's not that different from baseball bats. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I do have an axe-handled baseball bat. The, the uh, handle of the baseball bat is uh, shaped just like an axe handle in terms of the grip. Huh. So it's not uh, symmetrical. It's, it's right. interesting. How does that work out? Is that how a cricket? Bat? I don't know. I've only got one of them, and I've, I've never, I don't think it was a, a very popular thing in the market. <laughs> it was kind of a gimmick, you know, marketing tool trying to sell it. Um, I don't know that it ever went anywhere. It didn't make it into the, the big leagues anyway. Okay, well, that's that's fascinating. I uh, I am in love with my axe, and yeah, so I, I'm interested in that indeed. So the uh, we've already talked a little bit prior to this recording, but um, just a little background on the topic of this show. The topic is called the art and science of sound healing, and essentially the reason. <clears throat> The reason I created this show was because I work a great deal <clears throat> in the field of sound healing or people utilizing sound for therapeutic effects. And what I've found is that it's a field where people have lots of positive results and it's it's kind of it's really extraordinary how many and vast the positive results are but then also it's a field that's plagued by uh, by misinformation so most of the theories and philosophies that people promote about sound healing in order to justify the the positive results they're getting are most of the the theories and philosophies are based in very, very poor understanding of really basic physics of sound, things that right off the bat to somebody who's studied acoustics or physics of vibrations, right off the bat stand out as preposterous. And so it's a, a really tremendous kind of uh, problem I, I see. It's a problem in my life because people are always coming up to me and you know constantly laying down these theories and, and pictures of how sound healing works. And they're really excited to talk to me because I have a background in physics. And so they think that I'll be really excited about their sort of physics sounding theory. But in fact, it's quite the opposite. I'm usually having to bite my tongue, trying to determine whether they want to know what I actually think or whether I should you know, just keep my mouth shut and continue letting them enjoy their view 
of it, even if even if it's based in some sort of uh, really clear misunderstanding. So I'm very excited to talk to you about this because even though, as best I know, you don't have any sort of background in anything to do with healing, you do have a really tremendous knowledge base about the physics of sound and vibration. And when someone's right utilizing sound, they're what I always tell people and is that of all fields of physics, the field of sound and vibration is one of the one of the best understood, even though sometimes it's incalculable, the basic principles are relatively simple. In fact, that's part of why it's, you know, near the beginning of the physics textbooks, because it's something you can kind of catch on to early on the phys- and it's fundamental to to basically all physics if you start understanding the physics of sound then quantum mechanics the principles of quantum mechanics become a lot clearer in some regards at least in terms of you know energy levels relations the the relation of you know energy levels to harmonics and things like that i have a this is a a big and important question for you. If imagine a somebody who makes their living or practices what they call sound healing comes up to you and they tell you that everything in the body has its own frequency of vibration. They'll usually say it something like that, or they'll just say its own frequency. And that that means that you can, you know, use, uh, say, a tuning fork tuned to that frequency and heal somebody and that that makes sense. And that's that's physics. They, they think they just told me something about physics or told you something about physics. When you hear somebody say something like that, what what are your th- thoughts right off the bat? You know, the honest thoughts is that most of the time it's a bunch of bunk when it comes out. And here's why. Um, it is true that objects and systems can have a resonance frequency. And there are two things that determine whether a system will have a resonance frequency. The system has to have some kind of elasticity, like a rubber band, something that when you take the system and push it away from its at-rest state, something has to pull it back to where that rest state would be. So it has to have some kind of elastic property. You try to squish it, it pushes back. You try to pull it, it pulls back. has to have that elastic property. And then also has to have what's called inertia, some kind of a mass. And without those two things, you don't get any kind of a resonance. And basically that frequency is totally and completely dependent on what the value of that elastic or and that inertia mass properties are. So you hang a mass from a spring and it oscillates. You hit a tuning fork and the tuning fork sings and vibrates because it's got elastic properties and it's got inertia and it does its thing. The difficulty with trying to match that to the human body is that the frequency of the tuning fork is nowhere even closely related to anything that the human body could do. So you have a tuning fork that's vibrating at 400 hertz, and there is nothing in the human body that will vibrate at 400 hertz whatsoever. Um, 
Another way of maybe thinking of things is that the larger the object is, the lower its frequency is going to be. Now, there are parts of the body that will have some resonances. For example, if you ever go to a waterfall, if I go to Niagara Falls, I get kind of sick to my stomach. I get queasy. I get nauseous because the, the frequencies that are produced by the waterfall, which happen to be below the human range of human hearing in the 10 to 15 cycles per second or 10 to 15 hertz range, which you can't hear with your ear, those are fairly close to the resonances of your stomach. And as the stomach is the mass and the ligaments and the muscles that hold your stomach in place are the elastic property, then your stomach can have a resonance at about 10 to 15 hertz. And so the waterfall noise, which your ears can't hear, will make your stomach start to bounce up and down a little bit and you can start to feel queasy or sick to your stomach. But exciting a tuning fork that has a frequency that your ear can nicely hear, about four to 500 hertz, is not going to excite anything in your body. So that, that's the first problem is that most of the sounds, most of the frequencies that people try to use with tuning forks, I've seen people, you know, watch people take tuning forks and, and vibrate the tuning fork and then hold it over somebody's body and move it over somebody's body to try and get all the negative energy out of their body. There's nothing at all in, in the physics of what's going on with the human body. There's another problem in that you have to have two things to make something have a resonance, elastic properties and inertia, mass properties. There's also a third property that comes into play, and that's damping, something that removes energy from the system. Usually in, in a physics sense, we call it some kind of friction two surfaces rubbing against each other or something that causes heat. And the human body is full of stuff that has lots and lots and lots of damping. So it is very, very difficult to get part of the human body to vibrate because there is so much damping involved that it's like a tuning fork. You hit a tuning fork and the tuning fork will sing for several seconds, 10 seconds maybe. Very, very, very little damping in a tuning fork. The human body, the human flesh, human skin, bones and ligaments and muscles have lots and lots and lots and lots of damping. It's very difficult to get sound energy into the human body and make it do something like that. Yes, um, particularly if you're not touching the body with the object. Correct. And even if you are touching, the, so if you're touching the body with an object, for example, they use, people use uh, hearing specialists, audiologists use tuning forks to try and assess hearing in, 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 the, in the inner ear part of your hearing. It'll take a tuning fork and touch it to the skull right behind your ear and testing to see how much what this called bone conduction hearing, how much of the vibration is going through the skull and causing your, your inner ear to vibrate and to move simply because of the skull vibration. So the skull's hard enough and stiff enough that it can have some vibrations. I'm not sure about resonances. I've seen movies, you know, sci-fi movies where somebody will take a loudspeaker and point at somebody's head and make their head explode. Um, I think uh, Hitler was looking at uh, some stuff and in, in the, in the Nazis were looking at some kind of experimentation back in World War II trying to come up with huge loudspeakers that could cause the enemy army to, uh, you know, get sick and have their bodies, you know, do weird things because of the sound waves. Um, not ever going to really happen, but it was maybe interesting to think about. 
Um, I've, I've uh, recently had some nerve conduction studies, uh, like by a neurologist, done on my own body for some nerve problems I was having. And one of the things they'll do is they'll take a tuning fork, I believe at 125 hertz, and they'll stick the, they'll whack the tuning fork and take the stem of the tuning fork and uh, place it on your finger, place it on your toes, place it somewhere on your knee or your leg, trying to see if you can feel the vibration. Um, and it's not a go, it's not making your body resonate or making the body go into some kind of resonance. It's simply determining whether or not the nerves and the sense of touch in your skin and your nerve system is able to respond and pick up that little vibration signal. But if you just hold the tuning fork near the skin, you're not going to feel anything at all. It doesn't move the air enough, doesn't move the skin enough to be able to have that kind of an effect. I have a question for you. Um, I, I actually do... I, one one um, example I do for people uh, when I, I teach classes about the physics of sound and vibration to uh, massage therapists and body workers, and one of the demonstrations I do is I, I get a stethoscope and then a tuning fork, and what I discovered on my own just kind of playing around is that if you put a stethoscope on, say, your chest, you know, near your heart or on your shoulder, and then you touch a tuning fork to a very distant bone. I usually use the ankle bone because it sticks out so well that you can hear it very well through the stethoscope, much to my surprise. The sound travels quite a bit through the bones even though presumably it's not one of the resonant frequencies of the bones, but the bone, the bone structure does. Well, you don't, you don't have to have a resonance in order for sound to travel through something. Mm -hmm. When sound is traveling through air, you're listening to my voice right now. There's no resonances going on at all. Mm -hmm. It's simply sound is traveling through a medium. That's a totally different thing than to have a resonance. So the bones in your system, in your body have elastic and inertia properties and sound will travel through a solid medium like a bone very well, very well. So that's not, that's not a resonance. That's just simply a sound wave traveling through a solid material. Exactly. Just like touching, you touch your tuning fork to a door and you'll be surprised at how loud the sound is simply because the door allows sound waves to travel through it very well, but that's not a resonance. Exactly. And it has nothing to do with the frequency. You pick a different frequency and it would travel just as well. A different size tuning fork would do just as well. In fact, when people ask me what tuning fork to choose, what frequency is the best frequency, I generally tell them that exact for, what? Se- for their the best, best tuning fork for what? Exactly. That, that, I mean, that, that, that's part of the issue is what's the best frequency for what are you trying to do with it? There are certain, there are frequencies, the doctors who, the neurologists who are trying to see if you've got good nerve conduction in your extremities, in your hands and your feet, are using a tuning fork. It's a 125 hertz tuning fork. But what they're actually doing is they're, when you touch the stem of the tuning fork to an object, you're actually getting twice the frequency that the tuning fork says, the way that the physics of how tuning forks behave. So if the tuning fork actually vibrates, the tuning fork is marked as 125 hertz tuning fork, and you're sticking the stem on something, what you're primarily picking up and responding to is the 250 hertz twice that frequency. This is the way that tuning forks behave. That's really fascinating. And by the way, for our listeners to know, 
Dr. Russell is in fact a, uh, has a, an especially strong expertise in the physics of tuning forks. You've done some, some uh, written some papers about the acoustics of tuning forks and yeah, I have a trilogy of papers on tuning forks, how they radiate sound, how they vibrate. Yeah, so you definitely know what you're talking about when it comes to tuning forks. Do yes. You, do you know anything about the resonant frequencies of the bone structure, what the the range is, or if there's any studies? Obviously, you can take a, a dead person and, you know, a, a skeleton and, you know, easily study the the resonant frequencies of the bones, but in a living person, it's a little more challenging. Uh, do you know anything about what the, about that? I, I don't, I, I've never done any kind of work with bioacoustics. There is a whole field or a whole branch of acoustics called biomedical acoustics or bioacoustics. Bioacoustics is more, uh, bioacoustics has to do more with animals and the sound production and how, how animals make and hear sound biomedical Acoustics has to do with more of using acoustics for medical purposes, and I'm sure that there are people who study that, but that's outside of my area of expertise, so I really don't know what what uh, what frequencies or what speeds. Um, the, I know that ultrasound works really well in the human body because human flesh is such a high water content, but I don't know about bone conduction. I'm sure that there are people who have studied it. I know people have looked at the human skull. Um, I, I just don't know what uh, what the numbers would be for that. Yeah, they definitely look at the skull quite a bit due to the uh, application of bone conduction for people with hearing loss. Yep. There's some really extraordinary advances in the ability to apply sound to people's bones and help people hear that couldn't hear previously. Even people that don't are born without real ear structures are... Right sometimes able to be provided with hearing simply through using the bones based on, you know, some of your, your right off the bat, you know, um, kind of when somebody says something about sound healing or sound therapy, like I mentioned to you earlier and you're you know, right off the bat, there's some issues with it that you recognize due to your knowledge of physics Based on that and, and my also recognizing that those theories about using special frequencies that resonate with particular parts of your body and that there's some sort of magical knowledge of that and that somehow that can work, that that works, recognizing that that doesn't make any sense in terms of physics. I've really, through myself, actually witnessing a very extensive amount of positive results people uh, having all kinds of improvements in their health and pain reduction and all kinds of things from being exposed to musical sound. I tried to figure out, so what, what is going on here? And I don't know if you got a chance to look at my paper or that chapter, but basically I came to the conclusion, and I, I don't know if I'd call it a conclusion, but perhaps better stated a hypothesis that it has a lot, the, the positive results people are experiencing from these things in my belief has more to do with its relationship to essentially object recognition 
and I know I discussed this with you on our previous conversation, but basically that sound, say someone applies a tuning fork like the neurologist used for you, uh, the neurologist places the tuning fork on your fingertip to see if you can feel your t- fingertip. It's a way to, to bring your attention to that spot. And that utilizing tuning forks and touching them to people's bodies, it's a very good way to bring someone's attention to a region of their body. Yeah, I don't know if what the neurologist is doing is trying to bring your attention to it as much as he's trying to make sure that the pathway of the nerve from the brain to the fingertip is working properly. Maybe what maybe the the interpretation psychologically from you know the the patient's viewpoint is that I'm aware of my fingertip. Um, I think the the study that the neurologist is trying to do is to simply see if the nerve is responding because they know that nerves respond and have, are sensitive to vibration information over the range of 100 hertz to 400 hertz, say. And so if I put a 250 hertz vibration on the nerve, the nerve will respond if it's healthy. But I'm not sure that that's exactly the same thing as trying to see whether or not the person is identifying where their fingertip is or drawing attention to the fingertip. Yeah, I wasn't saying that the neurologist is approaching it in those terms, but what one thing that happens when you touch a tuning fork to your body is your attention goes there. Sure, that's, that's true if you would touch your body with a pen or a pencil tip or something else. It, your, your, your attention goes to where the thing is, and the neurologist will do tests on your back to see how far apart two pinpricks can be before you can or can't resolve the two individual points. But a, a special thing occurs with the vibrating tuning fork in that it's not just a point, but it's a distributed region. So if you touch the tuning fork to you know a point on your back, you won't just feel it at the point like a pinprick. Instead, you feel a some sort of extended region of your body that extends within a little bit. So, for example, if you touch it to your knuckle, you'll feel not only your your attention will go not just to your knuckle, but to your whole finger and um, parts of your hand and sometimes even f- further. And that's, that's simply because you're causing the bones in your, in your finger to vibrate. And so the bones vibrating are causing a larger part of your finger to engage with the nerves instead of at a single point. Exactly. And so my approach to, or my view thus far about some of these positive effects people experience from utilizing sound is that it has more to do with that, with bringing your attention, your awareness to regions of your body where your awareness wasn't previously present. People have a lot of blind spots in their body, places that they habitually ignore, kind of like uh, essentially the way psychoanalysis works people will have you know they had a traumatic experience when they were young and now they repress that memory and it's hidden in their subconscious and then by uncovering it there's a there's a variety of ways that that can have therapeutic value and that likewise people have blind spots in their body it can come from uh from injuries you know, maybe you hurt, hurt your knee when, you know, you're young on a horse or something. And then after that, you walk strangely and then it causes these 
places in your body that you repress your awareness of and that by bringing awareness to regions of your body it has it can potentially have a lot of therapeutic value and there's a lot of different different studies about uh, mind body awareness demonstrating the therapeutic value and sound is a particularly useful medium for uh, creating or instigating broad regions of awareness, body awareness. So if I have, for example, I, I build um, sound immersion systems. They're basically massage tables that use tactile transducers to play music into your body via tactile vibrations. So you're just exciting the entire body at the same time. Exactly. And so then you feel your whole body at the same time, <clears throat> which is uh, a big part of athletic development, of coordination. And also it turns out there's a, a lot of new studies showing that whole body vibration, vibrating your whole body at once, inhibits pain receptors. And one of the most surprising and tremendous results I've seen from people in sound immersion uh, having music playing into their body, vibrating into their body at a pretty strong amplitude that people will have their pain go away. And the theories that most people propose about those don't make any sense, but it makes a lot of sense in terms of at least it, there's there's a, an, a, a viable approach through looking at body awareness and um I think that, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. I, I know that the human brain is pretty amazing. And I know that the way that people perceive things is amazing. I know that there's a lot of, even some things that I've studied with sports that are very psycho. Um, that's the word I want. Um, not a psychoanalysis, but um, there is a very strong placebo effect. Sometimes if somebody believes something is going to work, it really works whether there's anything going on. And that makes it really difficult from a scientific viewpoint to figure out what's happening mm. because, you know, if a person is, is convinced something's going to work, then chances are very high. It's going to work. Um, whether there's any scientific reasons to explain why I, I see this in sports equipment. If a person believes a particular kind of bat's going to help them play, you know what? That particular bat helps them play. There's nothing scientific that would explain why that particular bat is any better than any other bat they could pick up, except that the person has some confidence and they, because of that confidence, they can swing better, hit better, play better. So that's an aspect that I really don't have any knowledge about at all in terms of my the stuff that I do. I deal with the science of how sound, what sound is, how sound waves travel through the air, um, how different systems and patterns like those Cladney plates that are very popular to talk about how they work, what they're actually doing. Um, those are the things that I deal with, but I really don't have much of an expertise when it comes to how the human mind and psyche responds to different things. I, I am curious in your, I have, you're talking about an immersion, a sound immersion chamber that's more of a tactile vibration sensor. I have read of some relaxation boxes, like a big coffin sized box that you essentially get in and it's got loudspeakers all over the inside of the box and some huge subwoofers to basically make the thing shake so you can feel the vibration in your body. Um, that people use as relaxing chambers, which is probably a, sounds like a similar thing to what you're talking about. Um, 
the idea that you're engaging the, you know, you're, you're in a closed environment for one thing, it's comfortable, you've got music that you're listening to, so your, your ears system and your hearing system is processing music, but at the same time you're feeling the vibration throughout your entire body. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of, of, of real reasons why that would cause somebody to relax. Um, and if you're relaxed, then probably the natural healing processes in your body are going to be much more active than if you were tense or whatever else is going on. Exactly. I'm not sure that that answers your question, but I'm not sure that I, I really don't have much experience with the, the psyche part of it or the psychological part of it to answer that. Yeah, that, that's actually what I believe is the number one uh, reason these things work is because they're so tremendously effective for deep relaxation. And it's definitely a well-known fact that stress is correlated with all, almost every type of illness. Sure, I know. I know people who are who are hypochondriacs. that can make themselves sick just you know by thinking, "Oh, I'm going to get a cold." Well, you know what? They get a cold. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, are they whether they've been exposed to anything or not? Your body can do some amazing things, and your brain can make your body do some amazing things. The reverse placebo. So if you're able to relax, you know whether it's the sound that's doing the healing, I would have some real reservations about that. But if it's if it's the if, if it's something where the, the sound is allowing your body to relax and in the process of relaxing, then your body is taking care of itself. I could understand and agree with that. Another really interesting aspect of sound, particularly tactile sound, where you feel it uh, with your whole body and hear it at the same time, I call it sound immersion, is that you sound has a tremendous and a tremendous psychological, mental, internal effect that, you know, the reason people, we like listening to music so much is something to do with what's happening inside our minds. There's a lot of emotional, emotional connection to music. Um, some music can make you cry, make you want to weep just because of the, the you know, and it has to do with something of your culture as well. Mm -hmm. I don't respond very well to Asian or Indian music, but they do. Um, but there are some types of, you know, uh, Western music, some classical pieces of music that can make me want to cry. Even though there's there's no words to it, there's no story, it's just the music is, is affecting me emotionally. There's other music that makes me angry. Other music <laughs> makes me want to get up and dance. Other music makes me want to, you know, move around and do different things. So music is very connected to our psyche, our, our intellect, our being, our, our soul inside. That That's a connection that, that science has a hard time figuring out. Yes, yeah, so when you're experiencing sound immersion, you're having that type of effect, particularly if you're listening to music, whatever is going on in our mind, our response, our psyche's response to music. And then simultaneously, we're having this physical experience of it where we feel it throughout our body. And that experience, the combination of those two things occurring simultaneously, I think has, um, that, that's what I, I work on exploring in my Future research is certainly focused on that because I've witnessed so many positive effects for which there aren't any really clearly defined reasons other than what I've described thus far. But having your in, your uh, internal subjective psyche-based musical experience simultaneously with 
experiencing it through your whole body um, is is a it unifies us in a sense in that you know our our body and our mind are experiencing one and the same thing simultaneously and you know a lot of uh, psychological issues that you know that people face have to do with uh, the sort of the breaking apart of our mind into kind of separate units and the breaking apart people have you see people that are very very non-physical you probably see it in working in science quite a bit people that don't exercise and don't do anything active and they live very much in a mental sphere and neglect their body they don't pay attention to what they eat and whatnot and it that results in you know tremendous problems and long-term problems a lot and potentially vice versa there's people that are extremely physical and ignore their mind and that results in problems too and so anything that can bring all the disparate parts of ourselves together seems like it is uh, reasonable that it could have therapeutic value so I have a particular interest in the resonant, uh, the, the modal structure. For our listeners that don't know what modal means in this context, when, when you have a cavity, for example, or an object, if you measure its, all of its resonant frequencies this, this, or calculate it, if you can calculate them, the sum total of all of those is what's called its modes. It's modes of vibration. And I have a particular interest in the modal structure of various shapes. And I'm wondering if you, have you done any studies or any research particularly pertaining to different shapes and their modal structures? Uh, not, not in the terms of symmetry and the chematics that you're talking about, which is, is the other field that's often um, compared to or used along with, with sound healing. I do what's called modal analysis of musical instruments and structures, which is where I, I do an experiment that actually shows me what the shapes... So when, when you say modes and modal response, all, what that means to me as a scientist is I'm just looking at the the shapes with which a structure vibrates and the frequencies at which those shapes occur. So that tells me how a baseball bat vibrates or how a guitar body vibrates and what ways does the guitar body vibrate and at what frequencies does the guitar body vibrate so that it produces the sound quality that it does. Any given structure of whatever the shape may be, as long as there are boundaries to the structure, and that's critical is it has to have some kind of boundaries. So there has to be an end or an edge to something or a wall that stops something. Um, if you've got a structure that has some kind of boundaries, then you're going, we, we, in another word for mode shapes is simply standing waves, a wave that bounces back and forth, a sound wave or a vibrational wave bounces back and forth between the two boundaries or the whatever many boundaries there are. And as a result of that wave bouncing back and forth, it sets up a wave pattern that doesn't go anywhere. It just stands still. And so on, on things that are called cladney patterns, where you sprinkle sand on a plate and then make the plate vibrate and you get these really pretty pictures of sand, 
the places where the sand collects are places on the plate that are not moving at all. They're stationary points, and that's why the sand collects there, because all the other parts of the plate are vibrating up and down, and usually they're vibrating up and down with opposite phase, which means that one part's going up while the other part next to it is going down, and in between is a part of the object that doesn't move at all. In a, in a, in a tube of air, a cylinder filled with air, you'll get a similar thing where the the air molecules or the air particles are moving back and forth, and there are some places where nothing happens at all and other places where the particles are getting squished together or being spread further apart. So, yeah, I do, I do, I don't look at so much whether it's a square. There have been, oh, there's a whole bunch of people that studied this. Cladney did it. A woman named Mary Waller did a whole bunch of really cool photographs and figures back in the 1930s. Um, looking at different symmetries for elliptical plates and hexagonal plates and octagonal plates and triangular plates and all kinds of different shapes to get an idea of what all the really cool, pretty symmetric patterns are. I don't look so much at the symmetric stuff, but I look at a guitar body or a clarinet cylinder or a baseball bat or a hockey stick, and I extract what those mode shapes and frequencies are to understand how the system is behaving. How do you measure that? Do you do you use little transducers placed all over the bat or do you do some sort of holographic imaging? So I, I use two transducers. One is called an accelerometer, which simply measures the vibration. It measures acceleration, but simply it just measures it measures the vibration. I put that at some location on the structure. And that's 3D. And then I use a, a very small, pardon me? Is, and that's 3D, like XYZ? I, yeah, I, I don't happen to have a 3D, a three-dimensional accelerometer. They do make them. Um, they, I use a one-dimensional accelerometer just because uh, I have a two-channel computer that analyzes my data, so I can't use a three-channel accelerometer. Um, in order to measure mode shapes, you've got to have an input and an output, and the output I measure with an accelerometer. But you could, if I had a, a, a big enough system, I could measure three-directional three motion at the same time. If I really want it, all i got to do is just redo the measurement and attach the accelerometer in a different orientation a different direction mm -hmm. to get the motion in that other direction and to excite the structure what i use is a, a small hammer it's, it's maybe the size of a pencil with a little tip at the end but the the hammer <laughs> excuse me the hammer has a force sensor in it that measures how much force mm. i'm hitting when I, I hit the structure so i hit it put them on a force and measure how much force i'm putting in and what what the time signal, it tells me what the force looks like as a function of time. And then I use the accelerometer at some location to measure the vibration at, that results after I've hit it. So I essentially measure the input force and the output vibration at a pair of points on the structure. And I do that for a whole bunch of pairs of points over the structure. And then I use, have some computer software that takes all those collections of data and fits them all together and does some processing on them. And then it tells me how every part of the structure vibrates compared to every other part of the structure. So I get these little nice little movies showing how a guitar bends and flexes and vibrates. Wow. Have, have you done any studies with carbon fiber? No. Um, I know there are people in our research in our faculty at, at Penn State who do work with carbon, not so much carbon fiber, but carbon nanotubes um, devices, really, really, really thin. I, I, some of the baseball bats I study are carbon fiber composite materials. Baseball bats and tennis rackets, a lot of hockey sticks and tennis rackets are, are carbon fiber, uh, fiberglass, carbon fiber, 
composite materials. Yeah, because the speed of sound in carbon fiber is on the order of 10 times the speed in wood. So it seems like the... It really depends on how the carbon fiber is laid up, oh. what is, how it's made. And, and the, the interesting thing about carbon fiber is you can get different set speeds of sound in different directions. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Depending on how the fibers in the carbon are in the, in the, in the material are laid out. That's something that a lot of manufacturers will take advantage of when they're designing baseball bats and tennis rackets is they design the, the way that the fabric, the carbon fabric is put together before they cure it and, and put the epoxy and the cure on it um, so that they can have different sound speeds or different vibrational speeds in different directions. Fascinating. They can change the stiffness and the vibration in different ways. Yeah, I, I recently started working with carbon fiber as a means by which to distribute the vibrations coming from transducers. And it has uh, served me well and been much more, it's obviously stronger and lighter. Yes, yeah, you can get real, real high strength and real durable things of which a fraction of the weight than you could with metal. And, and wood tends to add a little bit too much damping that the energy doesn't travel as far as well. So back to when you, you were talking a, a moment ago or we were discussing about modes and modal series of things. And something that, that I found really fascinating, and I'm, I'm, I, I can't find anybody else that's discussed this. Maybe it has no importance. Maybe it does. If you have a if you have uh, some sort of vibrational system just kind of a imaginary system where it's composed of subcomponents and imagine that each of those subcomponents has its own resonant frequency this kind of thing studied in great a lot of people study these things you know uh, arrays of coupled oscillators my, my phd thesis dealt with that kind of stuff exactly so if you have uh, adjacent oscillators where the their resonant frequencies if, if adjacent oscillators have a relationship such that the frequency ratio is part of the Fibonacci series it has a really peculiar and unique property in that the difference between two adjacent oscillators let's say you know one thing uh vibrates at say eight hertz and the other thing next to it vibrates at five hertz then the beating frequency between the two which would be three hertz is also a member of the fibonacci series so if you had some imaginary array of oscillators that are tuned to the to a fibonacci series of frequencies then the beating frequency between any adjacent oscillators will be the primary resonant frequency of the next one along the line. Okay. I, and that's a unique situation. It's, uh, it seems as if it could be utilized for um, efficient vibrational distribution or some such thing and might have a relationship to why Fibonacci structures appear so ubiquitously in natural systems, but I, I haven't been able to uh, construct that imaginary system in such a way geometrically where I where where it makes enough sense to me. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that being you know part of your realm of expertise. 
I've never looked at the Fibonacci series, but I'm jotting down a note to myself to to play around with that. It's 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 pretty fascinating that the beat frequencies equal the members of the series. Um, and then you know you look at things like uh, there's some Nautilus shells and whatnot that are, you know, they are resonant structures. So I guess the the question of what you would do with that is if if each of those little resonance systems was vibrating at its own resonance frequency, then you would get this phenomenon that you're talking about. The question would be is how do you get each of those oscillators to vibrate at their own resonance frequencies? So you'd have to be putting into it a signal that would have all of those frequencies in it. Yes, subjecting it to noise. You'd have to, you'd have to put in a noise that's composed of a Fibonacci series. Yes, yeah, so I've tried frequency. to design a physical system and then I've designed, I, I tried to, I worked on creating a nesting, uh, nesting cavities, you know, circular cavities. I've, I've approached it a bunch of different ways, but each way I've approached for actually constructing a physical manifestation of that has some sort of uh, fundamental drawbacks. I haven't been able to design yet a really good physical manifestation other than potentially, you know, a series of, of springs laid out, um, and then subject it to noise. But I, it seems that there will be a unique energy distribution, uh, that will occur when all the modes are the beat frequencies of adjacent modes. Um, but I, I, I haven't worked it out much past that other than just playing with the numbers. And it would also depend on how they're coupled together because if they're if they're not coupled together so that they can't talk to each other then nothing really would happen. There mm-hmm. has to be some means of the the systems communicating to each other. We call it sympathetic resonance when you take a piano and you hold down the the right pedal on a piano and yell at the piano, you the, all the strings in the piano will start to vibrate. Mhm because they're, each of them has a frequency that, or one of its harmonic series, it's got a number of frequencies where the string will respond and your voice has enough of those frequencies in it that match the frequencies in the string that the, the strings will start to vibrate because the air around them was vibrating. But if there's no way of making, you know, if you had two, an eight hertz and a five hertz oscillator and a three hertz next to it, but the three hertz wasn't connected, to the eight and the five, then nothing would happen. So there's got to be some way that they're all connected and talking to each other. Yeah, that's why I was picturing them nested or in series. Right. And maybe it could be done electronically. I Maybe it could even be done with a cellular automata type situation. I, yeah, I don't know, but I'm definitely fascinated by that. And I suspect that that will have some... I just suspect it. it's a, a guess, but that'll have some relationship to its its reason for being so ubiquitous in nature, because um, that's a, a unique property of a, a series that doesn't exist in any other. You have a bachelor's of degree in piano performance. Could you tell us just a little bit about that? Yeah, I started out life as a piano performance major. And I very quickly realized that I was not good enough to uh, make it as a profession on a, on a classical performing circuit. 
Um, I didn't want to be playing gigs and bars my whole life, and I, I did not want to be teaching piano lessons for the rest of my life. And I had an interest in science and math at the same time. So I took calculus and I took physics while I was a music major, and I had a physics teacher that was just awesome. And I said, I want to do what that guy does. <laughs> so I ended up getting a physics degree as well as a music degree. And then my senior year in high school, or my senior year in college, my advisor had me do a project on the physics of pianos. And this light bulb went off in my head, like I could do music and physics together in this field called acoustics. So that's what I went to grad school for, and that's what I teach now. That's fantastic. It's interesting. There's a little parallel with my story. I was an engineering major. First, I was uh, environmental engineering because I was mistaken about what environmental engineers actually do. I thought they uh-huh. were. I thought they were generally out there inventing solutions to environmental problems. But I found that at least where I was studying, they generally work for large corporations to help them meet their minimum environmental obligations. So they're generally working against the environment, sort of, um, because that's where the jobs are. And so then I switched to mechanical engineering. And during my mechanical engineering time, so I was three years in, I ended up realizing that I wanted to be a music major. So I went to the music (laughs) department and tried to be a music major. And thank goodness, the head of the percussion department was a gentleman with whom I did not hit it off right off the bat. And he was the main guy. And I would basically, he'd be my boss man for the rest of my schooling. So I said, well, I can't be a music major and I don't want to do engineering anymore. I guess I'll do physics. And so I, <laughs> I switched to physics and ended up getting my bachelor's and master's degrees in physics. And uh, I did not really get to study acoustics while I was in school, although everything I studied related to acoustics. Everything in physics relates to acoustics because it's, you're always studying waves and vibrations in one form or another. I was studying information theory in the context of holograms and also in the context of black holes, which is... I use holograms to study musical instruments every once in a while. We make, we do what's called holographic interferometry. We use, make a hologram of an object and then we let the object vibrate and look at the hologram while the object is vibrating and we can actually see little fringe patterns that correspond to the way that it vibrates actually use the hologram, a holographic interferometry to see a standing sound wave. I was just studying that yesterday, interestingly. I, I was re-going through my holography textbook. I think that it's probably getting close to t- uh, time to wrap up. I very much appreciate your sharing your time with us today. And... Uh, sharing your expertise. Do you have, is there any, uh, would you like me to put on the radio show the link to your website or to your animations? You make really extraordinary animations for people that are interested in the physics of sound and vibration. His animations are fantastic. Yeah, the animations would be fine. And it, 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 uh, I try very hard to make animations that are both visually appealing but that also show the correct physics. So they're mathematically and physically correct. But I try hard to show something that actually makes sense and looks visually appealing as well without being cartoonish. 
Um, and the hardest part for me is trying to write something about it that explains exactly what it is you're looking at and seeing. So yeah, they, they tend to be very, I use them in the classroom when I teach all the time. And I hear from other people that they also seem to be useful to them as well. Yeah, I've actually, your animations have helped me tremendously to better understand the physics of sound and vibration. And I'm certainly grateful for your not only making them, but sharing them with the world. Uh, I highly recommend looking at those. I'll put the link on the description of this podcast. And I believe that we will wrap up. Really thank you, Dr. Russell, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for asking. Hopefully I'll get to come visit you sometime and and uh, maybe see some of what you're working on and maybe I'll sure. end up in your graduate program. We'll see. That'd be fun. And yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Once again, this is the Art and Science of Sound Healing. Today our guest was Dr. Daniel A. Russell and my name is Thomas Orr Anderson. Until next time, be well. Thank you.